Thank you, Mandy. It is so wonderful to be back here and to see all that God's doing in the church and to see meet new faces and meet new people. And uh, let me just pray as we come to God's word this morning. Father, we just pray that as we open up the word of God together today, you might do that work that we can't do, that you might open our hearts to see the glory and greatness of King Jesus so that we would love him more, we would want to serve him more and lay down our lives before him. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the biggest discussions you'll find in the world of basketball at the moment is who is the GOAT? In other words, who is the greatest of all time? On the one hand, you will find those who believe that you can't go past MJ, Michael Jordan. Air Jordan with his incredible leap, his six winning titles with the Chicago Bulls, they say that he is definitely the GOAT. Who here believes Michael Jordan's the GOAT when it comes to basketball? All right, some of you. On the other hand, there are those who say that LeBron James is the GOAT. That even though he hadn't won as many titles as Air Jordan, um, LeBron, you know, he competed at a time when it was more difficult. And so he's the GOAT. Who, who here thinks that LeBron James is the GOAT? All right, one person. There we go. <laughs> now, part of the reason why there is so much discussion in basketball over who is the GOAT is that everyone loves a winner. Everyone loves a champion. And we feel that if we follow our champion and support our champion, then some of their greatness will rub off on us. Because when you think of it, one of the things we're all craving for ourselves is just a little bit of greatness. And this is what social media is all about. You know, it's about showing that you are the goat, that you have the greatest life of all time. You know, when you read someone's post on Instagram or Facebook, typically they don't post themselves in the worst clothes or having the worst time. Typically they post themselves looking the best they've ever looked, having the best time. You know, I'll never forget one morning opening up my Facebook, and you've probably never done this, but... And I was, opened up my Facebook and there was this parent praising their child who was only eight years old about all that their child had accomplished. And as, and as I thought about it, I thought, who is this, why is this parent doing this? I mean, who's this for? The child's only eight years old. They won't have a Facebook account because you need to be 13 to have a Facebook account. So who is this really for? Well, the reality is it's for the parent so that they can be the goat, so that they can demonstrate that they have the greatest life of all time. Now, I have to admit that um, I've done that exact same thing when it comes to Facebook. I don't know if you want to admit it as well. But I, to be honest, I've posted things online just to get the likes, and I found myself checking back multiple times throughout the day to see how many likes I've got. Have you ever done that? You better not put up your hand, hey? You see, I think the reason why we argue about who is the greatest in basketball or any sport for that matter, and the reason why social media has taken off in our culture is because our culture is a culture of celebrity. The ones we value most, the ones we consider to be the greatest are the celebrities. And now with social media, you don't have to be Michael Jordan to be a celebrity. All you need is a phone, a Facebook account or an Instagram account. And you can be your own celebrity and have your own followers. Now, of course, the cult of celebrity has not infected the church, has it? We don't put leaders on pedestals. 
We don't have our favorite Christian author or speaker who we consider to be the GOAT, the greatest author or speaker of all time. You know, if you're around various Christian contexts, you'll hear various names being dropped. Probably around our context, you'll hear the name Tim Keller, or maybe you might hear Matt Chandler, or maybe you might hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And it's not a bad thing to honour leaders. You know, Paul says in 1 uh, Timothy 5 that those who labour in preaching and teaching, they are worthy of double honour. You know, parents, I do think it's a good idea to teach your children the practice of calling their pastor by their title. So at this church, it would be to call Lawson, not just Lawson, but get your kids to call him Pastor Lawson or Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam. I think that's a good practice. It's biblical and it honours the office that God has called these men to. But still, I do think we need to stand against the cult of celebrity. You see, over the last five years, what we've seen in evangelicalism is many Christian leaders come crashing down. Christian leaders who are put on pedestals. And we put them on pedestals because I believe the cult of celebrity has infected our hearts. So how do we resist the cult of celebrity, both personally and also in the church? Well, fortunately, this is not a new problem. And as we come into Matthew 18 this morning, we're going to see that the cult of celebrity had infected the heart of Jesus' own disciples. Now, as we come into Matthew 18, we find that the disciples are at Peter's home in Capernaum, which was his base of operations when he was ministering throughout Galilee. And what we're going to see from this morning's passage is that if we want to stand against the cult of celebrity, then first we need to understand what is at the heart of the cult of celebrity. And second, we need to understand the cure for the cult of celebrity. And then finally, we need to cultivate the discipline of humility. So firstly, we need to understand what is at the heart of the cult of celebrity. We need to understand the cure for the cult of celebrity. And then we need to cultivate humility in our character. So first, let's have a look at what is at the heart of the cult of celebrity. Now, as I said, the cult of celebrity is not a new virus. It's a plague that has infected the hearts of humans for generations. And as we read the Gospels, we read that it was a plague that had infected the hearts of the disciples. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, he records how while they were on their way to Capernaum, where they were in Matthew 18, while they were on their way to Capernaum, the disciples were arguing about what? They were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus overheard them. And he asked them, he said, what are you arguing about? And they were silent because they were ashamed. But it seems when they had been at Capernaum at Peter's house for some time, they plucked up the courage and they asked Jesus this question in verse 1. Look in your Bibles. In verse 1, they asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, there is no doubt as to what the disciples were expecting Jesus to say. You know, they were expecting Jesus to bring about an earthly kingdom. And because Jesus had personally selected them to be his disciples, and because Jesus had given them the inner road to him and had revealed secrets of the kingdom that no one else had known, they would have expected Jesus to say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? You are. You guys are going to be my privileged servants. But do you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus turns this whole thing on its head, as we're going to see in a few moments. And he reveals that they had become infected with the cult of celebrity. 
Now, what is the cult of celebrity? What are some of the marks of the cult of celebrity? Well, you know, the world says that those who are truly great are those who have achieved. You know, about 15 years ago, if you were to say the name Lance Armstrong, what would come to mind? What would come to mind when I say the name Lance Armstrong? (laughs) That's what comes to mind now. But 15 years ago, you would have thought, champion. You know, I was watching a uh, documentary this past week on Lance Armstrong. And of course, it told the story of how this cancer survivor had come back to win seven titles of the Tour de France in a row. Something unheard of. Something that seemed impossible. And even though there were all these rumors at the time that he was a drug cheat and he was blood doping, no one believed it. Even though members of his team had come forward and they had said, we have seen it with our own eyes. We've seen him cheat. No one believed it. Why? Because of the power of his celebrity. You see, that is what our world values. It values achievement. And this story of this person who achieved the seemingly impossible blinded people to the truth. You know, as a church, we should value achievement. You know, it is not wrong to want to achieve great things for God. to want to see churches planted, leaders raised up, kids saved. Aren't those good things? Aren't those good things, church? They're great things. We We should want to see this church filled with people who are far from God wanting to know about Him. That would be an excellent thing, would it not? Yeah, I don't think, you're not not really convincing me. Would that be a really good thing? Yeah, amen, that would be a good thing. But when achievement becomes the overriding thing, the only thing that the church is about, then we're in danger. You know, how many times have you heard of a church or a ministry who were unwilling to confront their leader because they were afraid of what might happen to the church or the ministry if they were to leave. You know, it's sad, but this shows that the cult of celebrity has infected the hearts of many people in the church. But not only does our world value achievement, it also values power, the ability to be in control, and the ability to command others to do what you want them to do. You know, why this might seem crazy to us, many people living in Russia, they love their president, Vladimir Putin. That just blows our minds, doesn't it? But they love Vladimir Putin. They love him because he has cultivated this image of being a strong man, being a man who gets things done, who stands against the evils of the West. Now, it doesn't matter that he kills his opposition and he controls the media, He gets stuff done. You know, in every church, there will be power dynamics at work. If you are a leader, you will have power. Because of the nature of your office, if you're a leader in the church, you will have the power to make decisions and to ask people to do things. And Jesus himself, he has power. On the day of his ascension, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So power in and of itself is not a bad thing. But how many times have you heard of Christian leaders who abuse their power, Christian leaders who bully others to get them to do what they want them to do. But not only does our world, you know, um, value uh, achievement, and not only does it value power, 
but it also values prestige. Our world values having rights and status that others don't have. You know, I heard a while ago of this Christian conference which um, offered three different levels to the conference. On the most basic level, you could just come to the conference and for free, if you, all you had to do was register. That was the most basic level. Then there was a premium level. If you paid for it, you not only got to go to the conference, but you also got a book package and you also got to sit in the front few rows of the conference. But not only was there a basic level and there was a premium level, there was a third level, experience. Not only did you get to, get, you get to go to the conference, not only did you get the books, not only did you get to sit in the first few rows, some of you would hate that, you would say, no, the best would be to sit in the last few rows, wouldn't it? <laughs> not only did you get to sit in the first few rows, but you got tickets to go and have dinner with the conference speakers. I mean, we don't just want the basic level, do we? We want experience. We want the top level. And so that is what the cult of celebrity says that true greatness is about. It's about achievement. It's about power. It's about prestige. And these three tend to go together because once you've achieved something, you then get power. And once you have power, you then have prestige. You have rights or you think you have rights and privileges that others don't have. And as we have seen, this cult of celebrity had infected the hearts of Jesus' disciples. And I wonder if it's infected our hearts as well. You know, the disciples were following Jesus because they wanted to be the greatest. They wanted positions of power and prestige. And I wonder if we're the same. I wonder if we have pursued positions of influence in the church because we're seeking power and prestige, the cult of celebrity. You know, as I was preparing that, this message this week, I, I actually asked that question of myself. Why am I in ministry? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it for the prestige and the power? You see, because behind this quest for achievement and power and prestige is really a quest for identity. Because achievement, power and prestige, they do give you this sense of identity. You know, it's interesting in the Lance Armstrong documentary, Armstrong was not Lance's original surname, but it was the name of his stepfather. His original sur surname was Gunderson. And even though his mother divorced his stepfather at the age of 15, and he didn't really like his stepfather, he chose to keep his name Armstrong because of the strength of that name. Because by that point, by the age of 15, he was starting to make a name for himself as a triathlete. It was his identity. He was Lance Armstrong. His name was becoming synonymous with his achievements. So where do you get your identity from? Achievement? Power? Prestige? You know, we'll never deal with the cult of celebrity until we deal with the deeper issue of identity. So that's what's at the heart of the cult of celebrity. The heart of the cult of celebrity is the pursuit of achievement, power and prestige to gain a sense of identity. Well, now let's look at the cure for the cult of celebrity. Jesus, as you would expect, he turns this whole thing on its head. Look down your Bibles in verse 2. We read this. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Remember, whose house are they in? Whose house are they in at this point in Capernaum? 
Peter's house. This might have been Peter's own child that Jesus gets and puts in the midst of them. Do you think Peter would ever forget this lesson? I don't think Peter would ever forget this lesson as long as he lived. He takes this child. He puts them in the midst of them. Look down in verse 3. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, forget about becoming the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn and become like a child, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that unless you become like a child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, when you think about it, children are weak. Children cannot provide for themselves. You know, whenever you have a baby, that baby can't provide for itself. It needs care. If, 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 if a mother doesn't care for their child, what's going to happen to the child? They're going to die. You know, I have five children, and even though my old two children are now grown up and they have jobs, we have, still have three younger children who are in high school, and they're still very needy. They're still financially dependent upon me, and every time you know, I have to do my tax. I have to list them out in this column which says that they are my dependents. That's not the only time I realize they're financially dependent on me, by the way. <laughs> they make me realize that fact many times. You see, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you admit that you are weak, that you are needy, that you have nothing to offer God. Nothing. You need saving in God's eyes. You know, the other day, I went to a 50th birthday party of a good friend of mine. It's so hard to believe that I'm now going to 50th birthday parties. That's my friendship group. Where did the time go? Uh, but anyways, I was at this party and my friend's wife got up and she honored her husband. And it was beautiful, all the things she had to say about him. She listed off all these beautiful character traits about how he's been a wonderful husband, a wonderful father, a wonderful follower of Jesus. But at the end of her speech, she quoted from 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, which says this, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. You see, even all the things that we do achieve in life, they are only come by God's grace. And we need to recognize that fact. You see, according to Jesus, the only people who enter into the kingdom are those people who admit that they are weak, that they are needy, that they are poor, that they cannot save themselves. But also, by taking this child and putting him in the midst, I think he was not only suggesting that to enter the kingdom, you must admit that you are weak, that you're a sinner, that you cannot make it, but you must also put your simple trust in Jesus. You see, the child in Jesus' arm was a graphic illustration of loving trust and obedience. Jesus called to the child, and the child just simply came to him and obeyed him. You know, recently a friend of mine told me about a situation in which God told him to do something and it didn't seem like it was necessarily needed or that big a deal 
But even though it didn't seem like that big a deal or like it was needed, he followed through. And he did what God was laying on his conscience to do. And he found that when he did it, there was a whole new level of relationship with God, a whole new level of intimacy with God. You see, because in the kingdom of God, it's not about how talented you are or how gifted you are. It's about faith. It's about simple trust and obedience to Jesus. But not only do I think that by putting this child in their midst was Jesus saying that in order to enter his kingdom, one must turn and admit their weakness and put their trust in him. I think that Jesus was also suggesting that this is the type of relationship we now have with God. We are his children. He is our father. And part of being a child of God is to simply bask in his love. You see, if you want to be cured of the cult of celebrity, it doesn't come from focusing on who is the greatest, but it comes upon focusing on the reality that you are a member of the the kingdom of heaven, that you are a loved child. You see, because who was truly the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Who is the true goat, the greatest of all time? Very easy answer. It's Jesus. The one who put his simple trust in his father. The one who came in weakness and came in a manger, who came lowly. The one who laid down his life in weakness so that we could be saved. And those who are truly humble are those who don't, who don't beat themselves up or keep their eyes focused on themselves. But the truly humble people, they keep their eyes focused on Jesus, on him. You see, the cult of celebrity will still continue to infect your heart if you keep looking for your identity from achievement or from power or for, from prestige. But if you get your identity from the fact that you are a child of God and you bask in his love, if you are overcome with wonder, like overcome with wonder, you can't believe that you, of all people, get to be in the kingdom of heaven, then this question of who is the greatest won't even come into your hearts. So we have seen that the cult of celebrity is the pursuit of achievement, power, and prestige to gain a sense of identity. But we've also seen that if we want to be cured of the cult of celebrity, then we need to get our identity from the fact that we are God's children and we need to bask in his love. But how do we do this practically? How do we actually do this practically in our lives? Well, now I want to give you, I want to finish by giving you what I'm going to call some disciplines of humility. Some disciplines of humility that if you practice these disciplines, it will actually help produce in you the character of humility. So here's the first discipline of humility. It is the discipline of obscurity. It's the discipline of going intentionally out of your way not to call attention to yourself or your ministry. You know, in Isaiah 42, when Isaiah prophesies about Jesus the servant, he says of Jesus in verse 2 that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. You know, when, it, when Jesus came, he didn't go around trumpeting the fact that he was the Messiah. In fact, he did quite the opposite. After he healed people, he told them not to tell anyone about it. 
He didn't rush to Facebook and put it on Facebook. Hey, look at how many people I've healed. So you get all these billion of likes. No, he, he wasn't doing that. He just trusted the Father with the length and breadth of his ministry. You know, are you willing to, to follow Jesus into obscurity? To just be, to, to trust God the Father with the breadth of your ministry and just willing, be willing to serve him in obscurity? You know, Count von Zinzendorf, the founder of the Moravian Brethren, once said that everyone's ambition should be this, to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Is, this, is that your ambition? Practice the discipline of obscurity. God, I will just serve you, and if no one finds out, that's okay. Second, if you want to cultivate humility, you need to practice the discipline of hospitality. Look down in verse 5. Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The word receives in verse 5 has the idea of welcome, the idea of hospitality. Now, when it comes to hospitality, we tend to think that hospitality is just giving people meals. And that's part of it. It's a beautiful thing to provide a meal for another person. But true biblical hospitality is actually more than just providing meals. It's about welcoming strangers. It's about associating with those who are different from you. Now, Jesus in this verse talks about receiving one such child. I don't think he's talking about receiving literal children. I think what he's talking about is other believers. And in particular, I think he has the weak, the vulnerable, the lowly in mind. You know, one of the ways that you can cultivate humility is to intentionally associate with the weak and the lowly in your community. You know, whenever we come into a group, what we're always looking for is we're always looking for our people. And part of that is just natural. We're looking for our people who we can talk to, who we have existing relationship with. But also, we have to admit that there's a bit more of a sinister side to it. You see, the people that we, are, we know are the people that we associate with. And the reason, part of the reason why we associate with them is because they're easy to associate with. You know, the weak and the lowly, they're often, often difficult and demanding. But one of the dif- disciplines that will help you cultivate humility is to practice biblical hospitality. It is to make effort to go out of your way to associate with the weak and the lowly. So when you come into a church gathering like this, don't straight away go to your friends, those who you enjoy hanging out with. Why don't you go and mix with those you don't know? or who take a bit of work to get to know. You know, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just do what was easy for him, but he left heaven to associate with the weak, us. You know, I was at this pastor's conference once, and I was really hoping that I would share a room with one of the other pastors who I knew who pastored a large church. But I was actually put in a room for the conference with a guy who pastored a small rural church in New Zealand, a guy who had only been in ministry for six months, who I had nothing in common with. And to be honest, I was disappointed. I felt a little bit ripped off. I was hoping to spend time with other big pastors just like me. Now, I wish I could say that I realized how wrong my heart attitude was in that moment, but to be lying, I didn't. Only this week as I was writing this sermon did I realize how awful my heart was and how I may have missed an opportunity to welcome him. And by not welcoming him, I may have missed an opportunity 
to welcome Jesus. Notice Jesus says that if you receive them in my name, you receive me. You know, in some mysterious way, I can't explain it. But when we work with the poor, the marginalized and the lowly in the name of Jesus, we can sense the presence of Jesus. You see, you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. So go out of your way to associate with the weak and the lowly. But finally, the way to cultivate the character of humility is not only to practice the discipline of obscurity and the discipline of hospitality. Let me give you one final discipline, and that is the discipline of purity. The discipline of purity. You know, as I said at the beginning, we are living at a time when because of social media, you don't have to be Michael Jordan to be a celebrity. You can have a smartphone with a camera and a Facebook and an Instagram account. And the promise is, is that you can be a celebrity. You can be your own celebrity. But what you need to realize about big tech is that they are not the product. You are. (laughs) And Facebook, Instagram, other social media, Netflix, What they're about is they're trying to steal your attention. They're trying to keep you online for as long as possible so they can sell you to others and to sell stuff to you. And Jesus warns in verse 6 that whoever causes his people to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone fast around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And he laments the fact that temptations to sin will come from this world And then he repeats in verses 8 and 9 some of the teaching he's already given from the Sermon on the Mount. And he's basically putting forward two pathways, a pathway to life and a pathway to death. Now these pathways do lead to eternal destinations. But do you realize you are on that pathway now? You are making choices now that will either lead to life or will lead to death. And Jesus says, so if your hand Hello, there we go. You didn't even notice, did you? No. You know, Jesus, I don't think here, is speaking literally. A friend of mine this week, we were talking about this passage, and he was saying, um, uh, he was, when he was younger, he went to this church that he grew up in, and there was this guy who didn't have a leg. He had a prosthetic leg. And he thought, man, that guy is really godly. He's chopped off his leg. You know, if we were to take this literally, there would be a lot of people here, myself included, without eyes or legs. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is Jesus is saying, you have to get radical in your pursuit of purity. Radical. Take radical message, measures. Cut it off and throw it away. Why do you throw it away? So you won't be tempted to reattach it again. Because often we sin in the same ways over and over and over again. You know, one of the guys in our church many years ago, one of the things that he did because he just struggled with pornography, he kept on falling into that sin over and over again. One of the things that he did was he got rid of his iPhone, his smartphone. 
and, and just got a dumb phone because having that in his pocket was just such a temptation and caused him to sin over and over and over again. I wonder, are you even thinking about your smartphone? Are you even thinking about, about it and about how you should use it as a disciple of Jesus? And how it is shaping you as a person? Let me give you some suggestions about what you might want to do so your attention is not taken and stolen by your iPhone. Here's some things. Here's some things that I've tried. Number one, don't take your smartphone to bed with you at night. Don't allow your smartphone to sit by your bed at night. Because you know what? They've done studies and they found out that 75% of people, the, the last thing they look at before they go to bed is their phone and it's the first thing that they look up Look at when they get up in the morning. Do you really want your last thought as you go to sleep at night to be someone's Facebook post? Do you want your first thought when you wake up in the morning to be this message or email that you've received in the morning? Do you want that to be your first thought? Remember the old song? Thou my greatest thought by day or by night. Don't you want your greatest thought to be about Jesus? Maybe you need to not take your your phone into your bedroom and put it by your bed. Maybe you need to leave it out, out of your bedroom. Here's another idea that I had. Turn your phone, this is what I've done, turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. Turn off the notifications so you can't see when people like your posts or anything like that. You know, they've done other studies to say that nowadays people are checking their smartphones every 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes they're checking their email, they're checking their Facebook. Why don't you turn that stuff off so you're not distracted? And lastly, I would say this. Think about the why and the what of what you post. Why am I posting this? And what am I posting online? Am I contributing to the cult of celebrity? You see, because Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who are humble. And as I said, I don't think... I think personally that a truly humble person isn't even aware of their humility because their focus isn't on themselves. Their focus is on Christ. They are basking in the fact that they are God's child and they are getting what they didn't deserve. They're in the kingdom and they just can't believe that they're in the kingdom. Well, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that the greatest, the greatest goat of all time was Jesus. And we worship him today. We honor him today, Lord. We thank you, Father, for this message from Jesus. And Lord, help us to apply this to our lives so that we won't get our identity from achievement or power or prestige, but we will get our identity from the fact that we are your children, (laughs) That we're getting what we don't deserve. We're getting entrance into the kingdom, something that we don't deserve. And Lord, I just pray for us that we might walk that path of humility and cultivate humility in our lives by obscurity and by hospitality and by purity, pursuing purity in our lives. Lord, I just pray for us as a church, um, Lord, this morning, Lord, that you would just 
continue that work in us of sanctification and help us to see the glory and the greatness of Jesus this morning, I pray. In his name, amen.